Well, good morning. So glad that you're here today. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you, uh, greet you in the name of the Lord. Just grateful for the opportunity that we've already had. Man, I just could, I could have kept singing, right? What a sweet um, time of worship already. You can just really sense God's spirit here with us. And we are uh, asking for his spirit to continue to guide and to open up our eyes as we now spend time in his word. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and ask for Joe Donaldson to come up here with me. Uh, for those of you who weren't here last Sunday, we had to do a quick uh, change in the way our sermon was delivered. Pastor Paul came down with what he likes to call the Rona, and uh, he is still recovering, so it was going to be his opportunity to introduce Joe to you today, but instead it's mine. Uh, Joe Donaldson, he and his wife Becky, uh, their daughter Evie, who was dancing down here earlier, she's a sweet little girl. Um, they joined us from Reformed Theological Seminary, where Joe just finished his training there in seminary. And uh, what? It's Orlando, not Jackson. Okay, got yeah, it. It's a good one. Yes. So uh, he jumped. He came up here from Orlando for the opportunity to be here, just to kind of learn and to grow, uh, and to learn, just to, just to be 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 familiar with what it looks like to enter into pastoral ministry. And so his desire for this residency is to learn to be present with us, and then to prepare for full-time pastoral leadership in the future. And so we're excited for him to open up God's Word this morning. Um, Joe, I know that you've been preparing this message, and um, I was thinking about Ezra 7.10. Uh, this is one of my favorite verses as it relates to opening up God's Word, and it says this. It says, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So his desire was to, to learn God's word, to have it sink deeply into his heart, then to live it out himself, and then to teach it to those around him. And I know that that's what your desire is well. And so let me just pray for you, Joe, and ask for God to, to bless our time together. Well, we just thank you so much for this opportunity that we have together to be your people uh, gathered in your midst to, to sing praises to you and to now listen to your word. I thank you for this spokesperson, um, this man who has prepared his heart, who has sought to understand your word and who now seeks to teach your people. Lord, give us receptive hearts to listen, to grow, to learn, and to understand and to apply your word to our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Like Scott said, I am Joe, but uh, my title, and my, my title with my name, that is, is still up for debate. There is already a Pastor Joe. As you know, there are a lot of Joes, so you can call me Pastor Joe, you can call me Pastor Jed, Pastor Jody, and bring up memories of elementary school with that name. But uh, it's good to be here this morning. Um, during the first service, I went a little under, so don't worry, I added a whole fourth point. You think that's a joke, but it's not. Now, um, it's really good to be with you today. Um, we're going to be in a somewhat famous text this morning in Matthew 9, 35 through 38. We're going to be in Matthew 9, 35 through 38. Um, I'm going to invite you to rise for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, encouraging word. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom 
and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you for your word. And Jesus, thank you for being the, the good shepherd who, who sees us, whose heart is for us, who has compassion on us, who sees that we were lost and helpless without you and came after us. And I pray that this morning your word would, would reach our hearts, encourage those who are in the sheepfold, and gather those in who are not. Praise things in Christ's name. Amen. Like I said, this text is somewhat well-known. Um, the phrase, harvest is plentiful, labors a few, has been used in quite many a sermon to launch missionaries into the field, to encourage missionaries to go. But I think sometimes when we encounter a famous text, that familiarity can lead us to miss something, to perhaps go after and highlight in the text what is not really the point, per se. So I hope this morning to um, bring a fresh perspective to this text, to highlight some things that you might miss. As we approach scripture, we can never be hasty. I mean, that's what Treebeard says in Lord of the Rings, don't be hasty, and that certainly applies to the word of God. In this text today, it's not just about the kingdom of God, going for the kingdom, about missions. I think the critical point of this text is the heart of our Savior. And we find this morning that it's going to be that heart, the heart of our Savior, that drives us to care and to move towards others. If we're going to do work for his kingdom, we are called to remember that. I recently read an article where a pastor talks about why he quit the ministry, which is a disheartening thing to be sure. He talks about how tough the job was. He talks about having to deal with people over and over again in counseling sessions and the emotional toil of that. People who tried to get him fired, funerals that had an emotional toll, all these things led to burnout, to something resembling PTSD for him. And after all those years, he finally quit. But one thing he didn't mention just kind of kept ringing in my ears. He didn't talk about why. He didn't talk about why he got into ministry in the first place. He didn't talk about his motivations. Here was someone on the mission who quit. Isn't the mission noble? Shouldn't that be in of itself enough to drive us to do work for the kingdom? But as a career, it, pretty, it sounded pretty abysmal. There's not a lot of reason to get into ministry sometimes except for one reason and one reason only, the heart of Christ. We have to deal with how we treat some of our workers and staff members, that's true, but any work for the kingdom must be motivated first and foremost by a heart for others. And that heart for others is only cultivated by looking at the heart of Jesus. And that is what I think is a central point in this text. Where do we see the heart of Jesus most explicitly? In the gospel. And then I read a follow-up interview with this pastor. And the interviewer says that this guy had doubts about many of the traditional teachings of the Christian faith, such as the resurrection of Jesus or the virgin birth, or whether Jesus was the only way to find salvation. This guy quit ministry not just because it was hard. It is hard. But he quit his work for the kingdom because he forgot the gospel, maybe never believed it in the first place. 
to work for his kingdom in any capacity, whether you're a staff member in children's church or you're a missionary overseas or you're a greeter, any of those things requires a motivation that is at the heart of Christ, a compassion for others. It's not possible to do mission without it. Advancing the kingdom of Christ is only possible when we know the heart of Christ. In this text today, we will learn about mission, and I'll touch on that briefly. But we also plumb to the depths in, in a verse that we can easily skip over, and we really see what drives Jesus. We see his deep compassion for us. Again, we can only go once we know that. Here's the main point for today. Knowing our God's compassion for us in Christ, we seek to cultivate that same heart for others. And that'll be up on the screen later. So we're going to spend some time in 35, 36, and then 37, 38. And here are our three points today. We're going to see the example of Jesus. And then we're going to learn about the compassion of Jesus. And finally, we're going to learn the command of Jesus. Let's spend a bit of time on 35, where again we see his example. And in these verses, in this verse, what we are going to learn is that a heart like Christ moves towards others. It moves towards others. Not away from them, towards. It moves into action on behalf of others. And we see these in these verses in the language, in the language. I know the guy fresh out of seminary is going to talk to us about Greek, but I'm going to do it because I, it was hard, and so it's got to be worth it somehow. Verse 35, it wasn't as hard as Hebrew, by the way. Hebrew doesn't have vowels. I want you to think about that for a second. No vowels. That's right. There are little dots and dashes. Anyway, we don't have to go there. Greek is much easier, and one of the cool things about Greek is the verbs are very dynamic. They actually speak a lot to the meaning. And 35 is full of very um, informative words, shall I say. Your translations read, and Jesus went. It's more like as Jesus was going. You understand the difference? It's not, it's not something still. He's moving. He's on the go. And then it tells us what he was doing as he was going. He was teaching, he was proclaiming, and he was healing. Those are all active verbs. Get the sense here that Jesus is, just like Aslan in Narnia, on the move. He's on the move. Jesus is going places. And that tells us what he was doing. It tells us that he was teaching and proclaiming about what? The kingdom of God. And then he was bringing it as he healed the diseases, cast out demons, and the like. So it's an active mission, but it's a comprehensive mission. As we saw with the paralytic a few weeks ago, Jesus does not just care about the paralytic's body being healed, but he says what to him? Your sins are forgiven. Jesus cares about bodies and souls. He cares about the whole person. He is comprehensive. Not just the whole person. This verse makes it clear that he cares about everyone, everywhere. It says that Jesus went throughout what? All the cities and towns. Not some, not that one that he liked that had the best western where he was most comfortable just kidding no one's comfortable at a best western <laughs> he went throughout all the cities and towns he healed what every disease or a better translation would be all sorts of diseases and all sorts of afflictions he wasn't passing over some people because their condition was harder or maybe they were lepers and they were unclean remember jesus moves towards those people he cares about everyone everywhere all at once all at once 
And just think about this for a minute. All of the various sorts of afflictions that he encountered, and he cares about them all. He cares about them all. It's a ministry of word and deed. By his proclamation, Jesus told about a kingdom that was coming. In his action, he brought that kingdom into the present. It is a comprehensive and an active mission. We're called to follow Jesus in this. We'll get to that more a bit later, but for now, let me say a few words about it. One of the things that um, really drove me to this church, my first um, Sunday here, Pastor Paul preached the Sermon on the Mount. And often with the Sermon on the Mount, the preaching of that is, you can't do this, Jesus did it for you. Am I right? But we're disciples. We're called to follow him. And Paul had this excellent way of balancing the sense that I'm actually supposed to live these words out, but I'm forgiven and loved even when I don't. And that's a, that's a hard balance to strike. But it's critical that we can't miss one or the other, right? It's often said imitation is the highest form of flattery. And if we love Jesus, what do we do? We keep his commandments. We keep his commandments. That's what he said. He didn't say, if you keep my commandments, I will love you, right? That's what we do. We flip it. Every good mentor calls for imitation, right? Mr. Miyagi, imitate Mr. Miyagi, wax on, wax off. That's purely for Paul's sake and also for Pete Butler, who was wearing Cobra Kai socks yesterday. I think that that is the second most cultural, most important cultural text in this church. It's like Bible and Karate Kid. I think that that's how <laughs> we interpret life. Another good example, this one's for Paul, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Imitate. Flattery. I remember reading of a famous pastor who wrote about his mentorship under another pastor. He arrived all ready to go. He was single. He got to move in with this guy. And then the first day, he's kind of uh, starts bouncing on his heels a little bit because his uh, mentor is not really telling him to do anything. His mentor's just going about his day. And eventually the apprentice kind of gets frustrated and he just says, well, what, what do you want me to do? The mentor says simply, watch me. Watch me. We are disciples and so our missions should look like Christ's. The founder of our faith should be our example. And so there are a couple of questions I think we can ask then about ourselves and our mission. You can ask it individually. You can ask it of this church and of the church as a whole. Works on all these levels. Are we active like he was? Jesus slowed down and he prayed, and we'll see that later, but we are still called to go, as we will see later in Matthew. Are we comprehensive as, as he was? I think the church, we often miss this. We kind of go towards meeting physical needs or bodily needs, but we're not really good at balancing those, are we? We do a pretty good job here at Four Oaks, but we're called in many ways not just to tell people about Jesus, not just to tell them the gospel, but also to care for them. If they're hungry, to give them food, to clothe them if they don't have clothes. We're called to visit those in prison. All these things we're called to do as disciples. It's how we show the kingdom and show that we believe it, but it's also often a door for the gospel. It's in meeting those needs that we often are able to then tell someone about the good news of Jesus Christ. And this morning I want to ask you who the Lord has put on your heart for mission. Who needs Jesus in your life? Who are you being called to move towards? Or maybe a negative way to phrase the question is, who are you moving away from that you need to repent and turn towards? 
Who are you moving away from? Are you, is there someone in your life who's quote unquote hard to love or someone who just don't get along with, who maybe you don't want to be around? Who is Jesus calling you to move towards? But let me say this again, and this is why this point is the shortest one, because I think we're often good at going, but we're not good at stopping. We're not good at stopping. Or maybe that's just me. We're not good at stopping. And so before we go, what are we called to do? We're called to do in verse 36, we're called to remember the heart of Christ. Remember his compassion and his care. Here we're going to spend a lot of our time. And as we look at the heart of Jesus, we see that a heart like Christ cares deeply for the lost. Cares deeply. Not just cares, but cares deeply. Deeply. The first thing we see is that Jesus sees his people. Jesus cares by seeing his people. Like I said, 35 is full of action. Jesus is going, he's teaching, he's proclaiming, he's healing. Go, go, go. But then when you get to 36, it says when he saw, it stops the action. Jesus stops and he just looks and he sees. He sees. Think what it's like to be God. Think of all the things that were pressing on Jesus's attention at that moment. And what does he do? He sees them. He doesn't just go and work and engage in mission. No, no, no. He stops and he sees. He stops and he sees. A great example of this is the rich young ruler. It's found in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in Mark 21, Mark 10, 21, there's a detail that's added that I just think really is a chef's kiss. It says, Jesus looked at him and what? Loved him. Loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. See how that attentiveness, when Jesus sees him, he sees not just who he is and what he's struggling with, but what he needs, what he needs to hear. There's, there's a personal care that Christ gives to us. It's a great thing for someone to see you, right? When another person on this horizontal plane sees you. We all desire to be seen and noticed in our efforts, in our trying. I love when my wife stops me and puts her hand on my chest and just says, I see you. I appreciate that. It feels good to be noticed. But the God of the universe sees you. The God of the universe who has a million other things on his attention bandwidth sees you. He's got a million other people, bajillion other people, because he exists outside of time. He sees you. He sees you and he loves you. He could save the big important people, right? The people that really could, could make a difference. But he sees us, his people. How does Jesus see these people? It's not just loving them. He sees their condition again. He sees their condition he looks at these people and it says what? They were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Another translation puts it as distressed and dejected, which keeps the alliteration, which is nice. Alliterations are good. Harassed could mean oppressed, right? They, they kind of don't have anywhere to go and everyone's getting after them. If you think about sheep without a shepherd, they lack protection, right? What a shepherd was supposed to do, that's why he had a staff, is to fend off the wolves. That's why David was actually quite competent to slay Goliath. He knew how to use the sling. They're helpless. They're helpless. They don't have anyone to turn to. They can't find 
the good grass. They can't find the water. They're distressed and dejected. What is lacking for them, in other words, is a leader. A shepherd is a sort of leader. Jesus is not simply saying this, though, because it is a poignant metaphor. It is. It's not like Jesus looked out, saw shepherds, and said, you know what will really get the point across if I say sheep without a shepherd? Jesus is saying something much more profound, and he's saying it to people who are Jews. These Jews knew their Bibles. They knew their Old Testaments, what we call it. And because they knew it, when he says sheep without a shepherd, it conjures up all sorts of images in their head. Because the metaphor of God as shepherd and his people as a flock is all over scripture. In fact, just the metaphor of shepherd and flock is all over scripture. God seems to choose shepherds maybe because they're people who get it. They're people who get it. I mean, Abel was a shepherd. If we go back to Genesis 4, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all shepherds. And then we get to Moses. And what does he do? He leads people around a desert, a flock, if you will, carrying a staff. It's another shepherd analogy. And when Moses is about to die, what does Moses say to Joshua? He says to Joshua, these people are like sheep without a shepherd. You lead them. It's the same phrase. It's the same phrase. In 1 Kings 22, when the, the king is killed, one of the prophets says the people are like sheep without a shepherd. The leaders of Israel are over and over again in Scripture pictured as shepherds. But we know, if you know the storyline of Scripture, these sheep, these shepherds fail. So by the time we get to Ezekiel 34, as they are on the cusp of exile, God goes after these false shepherds. These false shepherds. And he says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Shepherds are supposed to lead sheep to grass that they can eat. But these shepherds were going to where it was good for them. It was good for them. You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. I mean, God is really eviscerating these false shepherds. But his response is to not just say, you've done wrong, do better. God's response is far greater and more majestic than that. God says, I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. Verse 16 of Ezekiel 34 says, I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. God's response is to enter into the situation and do it himself. Because he knows he's the one that can truly do it. Then uh, we get to the New Testament. Here comes this preacher who in John 10 says, I am the good shepherd. Now, we read that and we go, oh, he's a good shepherd. That's great and wonderful. But there's a couple implications of that statement that's um, implied it's not explicitly said here but it's implied when jesus says i am the good shepherd it's saying two things if god is the one who's going to shepherd his people jesus says i am that good shepherd what is jesus saying about himself that he's god it's crystal clear this is why when people say jesus does not really say i am god 
those people don't know what they're talking about. You can take them to numerous places where Jesus, the only implication, the only logical explanation for his statements is that he is God. It's not just, though, that Jesus is God, but that Jesus is here to fulfill God's promises. And so we also learn that God keeps his promises. He is the good shepherd who comes down in the person and work of Christ, sees his people, they are sheep without a shepherd, and seeks to meet their needs and meets our greatest need at the cross. He said he would come, and in Christ he has. Now what kind of shepherd is Jesus? What makes him the good shepherd? Well, like I said, he sees us, and he has compassion. Compassion is a word implying very, very deep care. Very deep care. We can make a lot out of it because the root of the word is bowels, and so a lot of people think like his innards twist inside of him as he felt compassion for these people. That might be making a bit much of it. But one Puritan wrote this, when Christ saw the people in misery, his bowels, his insides yearned for them. The works of grace and mercy in Christ, they come from his bowels first. Whatever Christ did, he did it out of love, grace, and mercy, and he did it from the very core of his being, the very core of his being. That quote is from a book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, who quotes another Puritan there. And he describes the heart of Jesus in this way, and specifically referring to this text. When we take the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as a whole, we consider the whole picture of who Jesus is. What stands out most strongly? Yes, he is the fulfillment of Old Testament hopes and longings. Yes, he is the one whose holiness causes even his friends to fall down in fear, aware of their sinfulness. Yes, he is a mighty teacher, one whose authority outstripped even that of the religious PhDs of the day. To diminish any of these is to step outside orthodoxy. But the dominant note, like a symphony, the thing, the note we hear the most, some of you are in music, I don't understand it that much, but I like it. The dominant note will be really, really here, what we really see in Christ in the Gospels. The most vivid and arresting element of the portrait is the way the Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it, yet truly deserve, desire it. I love that quote so much. And then he finally concludes with this statement. The Jesus given to us in the Gospels is not simply one who loves, but one who is love. Merciful affections stream from his innermost, rays, innermost heart as rays from the sun. If you go back to that quote for a moment, notice the way that he lists all these things that we kind of overemphasize instead of Jesus' heart. Some people go towards the idea that he is this holy and majestic God, but they miss his heart. Some people go after the teacher, perhaps the pastor at the beginning of the story, that was his struggle, but they miss his heart. We must know Christ as the merciful God, not simply one who loves, but one who is love, who is love. Now, of course, we are limited like Christ, but I still ask you, do you have this heart for people? Do you have this heart for people this morning? Do you move towards people or away from people? How do you think about the lost? I remember being overseas in East Asia, walking around a uh, college campus with a leader from Campus Crusade, and he's talking about his mission and what drives him, and he says, I just try to picture them as sheep without a shepherd and remind myself of that because that is how God sees them. 
It was sort of a mantra for him, in other words. He said it in his mind, under his breath, to just remind himself that these necessarily, I mean, a place like China, you might be persecuted. They're literally enemies of the gospel. But those aren't enemies. Those are sheep without a shepherd. A lot of times, issues in our culture, we forget the people, right? They're people to be loved, not issues. I'm referring to everyone in the LGBTQIA plus group. A lot of times we treat those people as issues to be resolved or confronted, but they are people. They are people who are sheep without a shepherd. It reframes how we think about people. A lot of people in this world are following false shepherds, are they not? This unfortunately applies to the church. There are some shepherds who are about consuming the sheep instead of loving and upholding them. They are sheep without a shepherd. There's a lot of people who follow celebrities who really don't care about them. I recently read about a celebrity who launched a cryptocurrency scheme, defrauded people of many thousands of dollars and has not repaid it, despite the fact that he publicly admitted that's what he did. Sheep without a shepherd, false shepherds, politicians who don't care about anything but their own power and gain. All these are bad shepherds so much that the people are like sheep without a shepherd. That is how we're called to view people this morning. We're called to view people that way because we are the ones who know the true shepherd and can point them to the good shepherd and overseer of their souls. The logic from 36 through 37 can be missed easily, and it's because we often don't think this way. Like I said, there's a lot of brokenness in this world, is there not? There's a lot of sinfulness, and we could be tempted to despair. But when Jesus looks out and he sees the condition of the people, they're harassed, helpless, they're sheep without a shepherd, their condition prompts him to command something. And it prompts him to say something that doesn't make much sense to me, and perhaps you missed it. If these people are harassed and helpless, if they're far from the kingdom, how can he say the harvest is plentiful? I mean, once you go out there and once you say, well, it doesn't actually look like things are going well. The implication, it is precisely the condition of the people that prompts his prayer, prompts his statement. Jesus looks at a lost and sinful world and says, they're ready for me. They're ready for me. We can despair at the brokenness, but Jesus is preparing a harvest in those moments, is he not? I recently heard one pastor phrase it this way. The church is either in a time of renewal or a time when God is sowing the ground for renewal. And so I think in 37 and 38, what we learn as we are told of his hope in this, about his optimism, if you will, about his command to pray, as we look at the command of Jesus, we learn that a heart like Christ's is hopefully patient. Hopefully patient. Christ does not look at the brokenness in this world and say, woe is the church. He says, no, the church is advancing. The kingdom of heaven is advancing. The gates of hell cannot stand against it. The church is moving forward. I am building my church. There is no reason for pessimism if you are a believer, if the gospel is true. As Paul says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and what? Be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. I'm not saying I can predict renewal. I don't know how bad things are going to get. But I can tell you, in history, there have been times when, if you zoom out, there have been times when things looked really bad, and it's precisely those moments that God brings revival. That God brings revival. 
He brings renewal. Perhaps we are seeing signs of this. I mean, just recently there was a revival in a place in Kentucky at a Christian college. I think the point in all this is that the darker things become, the more the church can shine. The more the church can shine. Before we go, however, and do this mission, though, notice again the command. Jesus does not say go, does he? He doesn't say the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, therefore go be those laborers. He doesn't do that, which is somewhat um, contradictory, perhaps, to the way we think about it. I mean, he will send, in verse 10, he will send the 12. So he does send people, but first he asks for prayer. And here we really see the wisdom of Christ. We as a culture, I feel, are often go, go, go people. How can we be more productive? How can we really tackle our to-do lists? I struggle in the morning instead of going into the Word and spending time with Jesus. I start going after my to-do list for the day. Mission is about going, but it's also about praying. It is so fascinating that that's the first thing that Jesus says, is it not? It, again, can be quite easily missed. Jesus doesn't just say, pray, does he? He says, pray earnestly. Jesus, when faced with a difficult task or a major opportunity, says, pray, pray. And this prayer is pictured as begging. The same word is used throughout the New Testament in the same way. For example, in Luke 5, 12, it's a paralytic who begs Jesus to heal him, begs. So we don't simply pray, we pray earnestly. We pray because it's important, because we know the mission is important, and because we desire the mission to go forward. Who do we pray to? I love the way that scripture in a few short verses can pack in so much. And again, if we don't slow down, we might be liable to miss it. We pray earnestly to who? The Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into what? His harvest. It could not be more clear that the harvest, the act of growing these crops for salvation, the, the people who will come to know and, and believe in Jesus, it's in God's control. It's his harvest. He is the Lord of it. Scripture makes it clear that he waters the field. He chooses which seeds take root. We are encouraged to remember this, and it is an encouragement. It's not a hindrance. A lot of people think that emphasizing the sovereignty of God and salvation, that he is in control of people's hearts, what is sometimes called being a Calvinist or being reformed, that that can somehow handicap our mission. It can hinder our mission, but it does not. It does precisely the opposite. It drives us to pray. It drives us to pray. Why? God is in control, and he is the one that can change hearts. He is the one who can change hearts. The sovereignty of God is the one who changes hearts to believe, who changes hearts to go into the mission field. He does all these things. And so we pray precisely because we believe he can change hearts. His sovereignty, therefore, drives us to dis drives us to prayer and keeps us from despair. His sovereignty drives us to prayer and keeps us from despair in our work for the kingdom. I ask you this morning, how do you know our God is compassionate? Do you know our compassionate Savior? Because again, knowing our God's compassion for us in Christ, we can then seek to cultivate that heart for others. How do we know our God is compassionate? In your own story. 
God over and over again rehearses the story to Israel at times that they seem to forget this. Over and over again in the prophets, for example, God is condemning people for not caring for the oppressed, for the helpless, for forgetting him, forgetting who he is and what he's done for them. And so he tells it to them in stories and parables. Remember, you were like a neglected child and I came along and I raised you and I took care of you and then you grew up and you left me. You left me. Is that you this morning? Are you someone who has forgotten how far you were from the kingdom and that God sought you out? One of the great parables, of course, is the parable of the 99. There's 99 sheep and they're there. They're good. 99 sheep is a pretty good number, I think, if you're a shepherd. But this shepherd, again, he's one of compassion. He's one who sees and he notices one of the sheep is missing. One of the sheep is missing. It actually doesn't make sense for him to do this, but because of his heart for that one sheep, he goes after it. He goes after it. He leaves the 99 and he comes after it to find that lost sheep. That lost sheep was you. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he left behind the 99 and he came to find you. He is the good shepherd. And what does he do as your good shepherd? As your good shepherd, Psalm 23 says, he leads you beside still waters. He brings you to a place of green, green grass. Green grass it sustains you. Quiet waters, you're at peace. You have everything you need because he is your good shepherd. Remember what you were, then remember what you are, and remember that people are often in the same condition that you once were. People are sheep without a shepherd just as you once were. Their brokenness may look a lot different than yours. They may not struggle with the same things that you struggled with. But their sinful heart is the same, and it's just acting out in different ways. They're still following false shepherds, and they still need the same message that encourages you. Jesus is the good shepherd to all sorts of sheep. Again, he is comprehensive. Doesn't matter what their brokenness is, doesn't matter what they're dealing with. He is the one that can meet their needs. He is the one that sees them and loves them and knows what they need. So will you tell them about this shepherd? Will you go out there and tell them? And again, go in cycles here. As soon as you start to sense that you're getting tired, go back to the gospel. Spend some time in the word and remember the life, death, and resurrection of Christ on your behalf. Let that fuel and drive your mission as you remember the Savior who came down, who sought you out, who died for you to bring you to himself, to bring you into his sheepfold. Let us pray this morning. Lord, thank you for your holy and majestic word. And thank you, Jesus, that you have a heart for us. Lord, it's really, really easy to forget that you don't just love us, but you like us and you care for us and you long to be with us. Lord, your word says that in love you predestined us. You loved us and then you sought us out. You didn't make us loved but you loved us before we were lovely. When we were a sheep wandering far from you who had broken your commands, who had strayed far from the sheepfold, and you came after us. You came after us in Christ. You sought us out. By your spirit, you have drawn us to yourself. Help us to rehearse that story. Help us to remember that story that we may not be prideful, but humble, that we may be compassionate towards others. Help us to move towards them 
to point them to the Good Shepherd. And I pray especially for those this morning who, who may be forgetting that this morning, who may be in a place that doesn't seem like quite still waters or green grass, that they would know that that is where they are, that they don't lack anything because you are their Good Shepherd. We pray these things in the name of that Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ. Amen.